1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Mark Rotella is out today so I'm here on my own bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Ted Steinberg discusses his new book, Gotham Unbound. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese tells us what to expect from the upcoming annual conference of the American Library Association. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We have a new number one on the fiction list this week. It's Written in My Own Heart's Blood by Diana Gabaldon. This is the very first uh, Outlander book that she's come out with in five years. It's number eight in the series but uh, all the outlander books can generally be read as standalones and uh, as usual she has someone from a relatively recent era in this case uh, an ex combat nurse in uh, Scotland in 1946 who ends up traveling back in time into the 1700s uh, and that that is the the basis for this entire story so this particular episode goes back and forth uh, between 1778 and the 20th century With the usual mix of romance, suspense, and other excitement. So that's at number one on the fiction list, written in my own heart's blood by Diana Gabaldon. Down at number six, we have The Matchmaker by Ellen Hildebrand. Um, This is her 13th novel, uh, chronicles what happens after a woman's true love returns to her 27 years after they've agreed to no longer be in touch. Uh, The PW Review is generally positive, Uh, it says that there is one misstep that's a downer ending that you can still see coming it still feels like it belongs in another book but despite this Hildebrand's story is an engaging read uh, for those who uh, don't mind a little bit of sadness at the end of their stories. So that's at number six. And finally at number 15 we have Counterfeit Lies by Oliver North yes that Oliver North um, he's writing military fiction now um, this is, uh, the publisher says it's a gripping non-stop tale that could only be written by someone who has been there done that but for those who primarily associate North's been there done on that with congressional hearings. Um, this is a little bit more exciting. It's got an undercover FBI agent investigating a smuggling ring. There's a contract killing and uh, a lot of excitement. So that's at uh, number 15 on the list Counterfeit Lies by Oliver North. And now, joining me, uh, we have a special guest. Uh, PW Nonfiction Reviews editor Alex Carley is here to give us an update on the nonfiction bestsellers. Hi, Alex. Hello. Very nice to have you here. So what's on the nonfiction list?
2: Just as with the fiction list, we have uh, first timers uh, at the number one and number six positions. The first one, a a huge seller at uh, 85,000 copies in the first week, was 67th Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton's Hard Choices. You know, the book was heavily embargoed. Uh, our review hasn't run yet, but it's been billed as the inside account of the crises, choices, and challenges she faced during her four years as Secretary of State and how those experiences drive her view of the future. And that's Hillary Rodham Clinton's hard choices. At number six, we have Rebbe. Rebe. The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, The Most Influential Rabbi in Modern History. It's by Joseph Talushkin, and uh, our PW's review called it An Engaging Account of the Seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, an admiring but honest look at Schneerson and his legacy. This book should also interest those who view the Rebbe's methods and worldview more critically. And that's Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson. Well,
1: that sounds like something I might want to pick up, since uh, the part of Crown Heights where I live is uh, Lubavitcher Central.
2: Oh, yes, and uh, I live in North Brooklyn.
1: Oh, yeah, so definitely a little bit of interesting history. All right, well, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you, Rose. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ted Steinberg tells us what happens to the ecosystem when you try to fit 19 million people onto one tiny island. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from PW offices in New York City. Today I've got Ted Steinberg on the line. His new book is Gotham Unbound, The Ecological History of Greater New York. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your
3: book. Well, the book uh, is a bit of an experiment. It looks at uh, what happens when you take about uh, 19 million people and – Jam them into less than 1% of the land mass of the United States. What happened ecologically when you do that uh, uh, is somewhat uh, surprising and I would dare say rather radical. Uh, Somewhere on the order of about 147 uh, square miles of marshland and open water uh, was turned into solid land to make way for real estate, Parks, roads, and of course, uh, landfills to bury all the uh, detritus that you get when you jam so many people into one spot on the planet. So it was really quite a radical uh, change in the environment of, of New York over the last couple hundred years or so.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's been, you said about 400 years, give or take.
3: Um, uh, correct. I mean, uh, New York uh, was settled by uh, 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 white uh, Europeans uh, beginning in. Uh, in the 1600s. So yeah, it's been 400 years, but uh, it's really only been over the last uh, 200 years or so that the really profound changes in the natural world uh, have happened.
1: And what kind of changes are those? I I used to live in northern Manhattan, and uh, we're very proud of Inwood Hill Park, where we actually have a salt marsh. But uh, as I understand it, they used to be all around the island of Manhattan.
3: Uh, That's correct. I mean, Manhattan is a uh, now about uh, 1700 football fields bigger than it was uh, back uh, when say henry hudson uh, sailed into new york harbor uh, the uh, perimeter of the island uh, was a uh, sloping interface uh, into the into the sea and there were mud flats there and there were wetlands there of course so one of the biggest changes that happened not just in manhattan but uh, all throughout uh, the greater new york area is the transformation of of wetlands of marshland Uh, into solid solid ground. That was one of the major changes. And the other uh, really, truly significant change that occurred um, in greater New York over the last couple hundred years began in the 19th century when uh, uh, water was imported uh, into uh, New York, into the island of Manhattan to help to underwrite the enormous explosion in the population that occurred. Uh, beginning in the 19th century, of course, New York uh, reached the one million mark in about 1870 or so. Uh, and all this population growth, high-density living, could never have happened uh, without uh, an outside source of water, which came initially from the Croton watershed, and then on mm-hmm. uh, New York went to the Catskills and eventually the Delaware Watershed. Well, what this did was all this water surging into New York was essentially a mini Hudson River. It uh, was loaded with nutrients, mostly in the form of, of sewage. Uh, and that ultimately, uh, without getting too technical about it, caused uh, a radical decline in the amount of oxygen in the water surrounding New York Harbor. And that, of course, compromised marine life. That's why we have a uh, Gowanus Canal that's largely a lifeless stew.
1: <laughs> In, indeed, that's a that's that's probably the most flattering thing I've ever heard anyone say about the Gowanus <laughs> Canal. Um, so, a few other people have, have looked at New York's ecology over the the last few hundred years, writing for uh, a non technical audience, like Mark Kurlansky and The Big Oyster. What makes your approach unique?
3: Well, actually, I, I like uh, Mark K- uh, Kurlansky's uh, book uh, The Big Oyster. I think it's one of his best books. Uh, one of the things he actually points out in that book is uh, something that uh, I make a lot of in my own book, which is that, um, uh, for the most part, um, I'd say that most New Yorkers, if you were to ask them, have no idea that they're living in the estuary of the Hudson River. Uh, an estuary is where freshwater and salt water come together. They're unique environments. They're incredibly rich and productive, rivaling agricultural land in terms of their biological productivity. And that's how all those oysters that were originally there back when Henry, Henry Hudson sailed into New York Harbor uh, got there. Um, but uh, Kurlansky just simply focuses on, on oysters, one, just an important, but only one aspect of. Uh, what's going on in New York's ecological history. What I've tried to do in this book is look at the larger picture here, not just oysters, but where oysters fit in in terms of the changes that I mentioned earlier with respect to the decline in uh, the oxygen level of the waters of New York Harbor. Oysters were very important in that regard because oysters are a filter feeder species, which means they filter toxins out of the water and they graze on uh, something called phytoplankton floating plant matter, drifting plant matter, if you want to think about it that way, that was produced by all this sewage uh, that was coming, coursing into New York carburet as a result of the expansion of New York and the uh, colonization of distant water supplies.
1: So you talk a lot about water. What about the flora and fauna up here on the land?
3: Well, um, uh, New York started out as a very dense place. And it's still a very dense place. Back in Henry Hudson's day, um, there was all kinds of what you might call natural density, and today we have what, for lack of a better way of putting it, you might call unnatural density. Back in Henry Hudson's day, you had, of course, the oysters, the clams, the mussels, uh, uh, an incredible amount of, uh, of grass, uh, uh, salt marsh grass, but even underwater grass. Uh, bears, wolves, mountain lions, deer, you porpoises, and uh, uh, even a wayward whale, perhaps making its way uh, up the Hudson River in the salt wedge that goes north of uh, uh, of, of New York City. Mm-hmm. So there was incredible uh, 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 density. It was must have been magnificent, actually, when you think about it. Well, today, uh, if you fast forward whatever 400 years, uh, what you find is that New York is still a very dense place, but now uh, we've got uh, an, uh, a large number of, uh, of human beings living in this spot in North America. In Manhattan Island alone, you've got about 69,000 people per square mile. Five of the densest cities in the world are, I mean, excuse me, in, in the United States are located in the greater New York area. Um, Guttenberg, New Jersey, uh, Hoboken, uh, Uh, West New York, I'm missing one, Union uh, Union City, and of course New York City itself, these extraordinarily dense places. The kind of flora and fauna, as you put it, that uh, tend to flourish now are those that uh, can make peace and flourish uh, an environment with a large number of human beings. So, for example, you see the ubiquitous uh, uh, Phragmites or common reed all over the place. Uh, This is a species that... uh, thrives in disturbed environments uh, and does well in uh, uh, a, uh, uh, in waters that are uh, uh, relatively well fortified with, with nutrients. We see gulls because of all the landfills that uh, once existed, pigeons, of course, mm-hmm. uh, around uh, Manhattan Island itself. Uh, there is now really, instead of that sloping interface that I mentioned earlier, now you have essentially open water and only species that can flourish in open water like uh, 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 hearing uh, and anchovies uh, are the ones that uh, tend to thrive there.
1: So how does New York City uh, how is New York's ecology resemble that of other like, densely settled coastal cities? You mentioned a little bit at the end uh, that port cities across the world from Shanghai to Mumbai Tokyo to Bangkok uh, need to learn from New York's ecological history. So, so what, what are the similarities there and what can they learn from us?
3: Well, New York is a is a great uh, case study uh, because it is located in an estuary. And if you take a look over time at the twenty five largest cities uh, in the world, say from around eighteen hundred, like I did, all the way up to two thousand and ten or so, uh, what you find is that more and more cities, ultimately now about seventy percent of them, are located uh, in estuaries where fresh water and salt water meet. Uh, and estuaries are um, as I said earlier, unique environments that uh, are uh, very uh, rich biologically speaking. So, New York has uh, what happened as goes New York, you might say. So goes the world, at least with respect to cities. Urbanization is on a tear throughout uh, the uh, planet today. It's uh, estimated that by uh, the middle of the century, somewhere, but. Be- Around seven in ten people on the planet Earth are going to be living in urban areas so and they're going to be many of them of course living in um, coastal environments and in estuaries and of course New York uh, has uh, particular uh, 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 issues with uh, respect to uh, to coastal flooding the kind of development that uh, that occurred uh, in New York is being emulated across the world, building in low-lying areas that are uh, prone to inundation, and even more so now uh, with sea level on the rise.
1: And and with big storms coming through like Hurricane Sandy. Correct. So what do you think of the, the proposed uh, anti-hurricane efforts that have been talked up a lot in New York in the last couple of years? Because it, certainly Sandy shook things up a great deal, but it's hard for uh, someone like me, who's not very well versed in this, to really know whether all of the proposed solutions have any merit.
3: Well, I don't know what the solutions are exactly. I mean, uh, it seems to me that uh, there hasn't really been uh, a solution proposed so much as some ideas about how to deal with this. Uh, I'll tell you what ideas won't work, uh, and that's what uh, New York has been doing for the last 300 or 400 years, which is, uh, and furiously so, in the last 200, which is that that the city has been thumbing its nose at the sea, building with abandon, reckless abandon, really, in some cases, uh, out into the floodplain.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, when you reclaim 147 square miles of land from the sea, you're you're, you're tempting fate there. And I think uh, the uh, uh, result of that development policy became very clear, painfully clear, uh, to many during during Hurricane Sandy. So there aren't really a lot of choices here, and this is why environmental history, uh, the environmental history of New York, is so important. Because the past structures what can happen in the present and on into the future, it's not as if we can pick new you build Blasio can pick New York up and move it up to Westchester or something like that. That's just not going to happen so there's there, there, there are only certain limited number of options here um, I'm not a civil engineer. But one obvious one is to build some sort of barrier like Mm -hmm. other cities like London, Amsterdam, Rotterdam uh, have done uh, with some success. Even U.S. cities like Stamford, Connecticut and Providence, Rhode Island have have done this kind of thing. And it was actually proposed in New York that they build hurricane barriers after Hurricane Donna in 1960. Hmm. Uh, now that's not happened. It's enormously expensive. Who's going to pay for this? It's going to be billion, not just billions and billions of dollars. It's going to be years and years and years just to get something like like this started. Uh, Bloomberg didn't think uh, he thought it was a non-starter. So in terms of uh, what his administration uh, did with respect to responding to Hurricane Sandy, there was there was really very little discussion of this. Another uh, uh, possibility is to retreat. Again, this was. Uh, uh, off the table, as far as Bloomberg uh, was was concerned, it's an open question as to whether the, the Blasio administration is going to going to do that or not. But it's not obviously politically popular to retreat, but retreat and some sort of barrier are probably going to be the most effective ways to to uh, ensure the safety of the city. Uh, the Bloomberg administration came up with a very elaborate plan, and, and it was they did a lot of work. It's actually a very judicious uh, study of. Um, Uh, of New York and uh, the coastal flooding issue, but it's untested as far as uh, anyone could tell. It had all kinds of uh, ideas. Uh, It was kind of a pluralistic approach. We'll build a levee here, a barrier there, wetlands over here, we'll do this over there, Uh, all kinds. But the basic idea was to surround New York like a fortress and keep the sea at bay. Um, Whether it will work or not, and who's going to pay for it? Uh, I couldn't tell you.
1: That is always the question. So um, turning to a slightly more cheerful topic, if people in New York wanted to get a little bit of a sense of what it was like back in the more agrarian days um, or to, to understand more about New York's ecology now and in the past, where are some good places for us to go?
3: Well, there's lots of good places to go. I don't know. You're never. We're never going to be able to uh, rewind the tape and... So you know, we, we create the world of Henry Hudson, but sure. there's, there's certainly plenty of natural beauty in New York and Jamaica Bay, uh, most certainly, and uh, in Staten Island, which I think uh, is often uh, written off by many as kind of all you know, uh, laughing stock or something like that. But actually, there's enormous natural beauty there. I mean, the Green Belt is there, the Blue Belt, and of course, there are uh, plans now uh, that are proceeding apace. Uh, to transform fresh Kills into, uh, into a park. Um, so uh, there's lots of places to, to, to venture. And if you want to go across uh, uh, the, uh, uh, over into New Jersey, you can uh, experience the, the Meadowlands. There's still about 8,000 uh, acres of, of wetland uh, over there, some of it in uh, very good condition and uh, uh, very worth people's time to visit.
1: Well, you know, shortly at some point, New Jersey earned the name of the Garden State. I think you just can't see it from the highways, which is all that a lot of New Yorkers see. But I think if you if you go off the highways, there's actually quite a lot to appreciate there.
3: Certainly in the Meadowlands.
1: I've been talking with Ted Steinberg. You can find his book Gotham Unbound in stores right now. Ted, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks again
1: for having me. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese tells us what happens when librarians invade Las Vegas. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the P.W. offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today P.W. senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to give us a preview of ALA. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Rose. It's always nice to have you here. So um, tell us a little bit about the upcoming ALA conference.
0: What Happens in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: what Happens in Vegas is probably going to be written about all all <laughs> over the Internet. That's how it seems to go these days.
0: That's right. Next week, uh, librarians and publishers uh, and various vendors, about 20,000 people probably, will be descending on the city of Las Vegas in June. Should be... Should be, should should be, be a <laughs> sweaty time.
1: I'm sure all these hotels have lots of air conditioning.
0: And you know, this is the first time ALA's actually been in Las Vegas since I think 1973. Wow. So we don't know what happened in 1973 to keep them away from 40 for 40 years, but. I'm looking forward to finding out.
1: That's a that's a quite a long stretch. So tell us a little bit about what ALA is, what it's like. You've been to many of these.
0: I've been to many of these. The American Library Association meeting to me is one of the most vibrant meetings that you can have. It brings together librarians, publishers, vendors, service providers, uh, and very often with not only a look at. The current environment for reading and what's going on in libraries, but also there's a lot of innovation and a lot of future oriented stuff happening there. Uh, And I think that innovation and that focus on the future uh, transformation is one of the themes of this year's show is really on display in the main program, which is going to be keynoted uh, by an author named Jane McGonigal, who wrote a great book called Reality is Broken. uh, And I think 2011 Mm -hmm. is when it came out. Um, And it's about gaming, but, you know, not gaming like Candy Crush and the kinds of things that we think about about, but really how gaming uh, is sort of this new world of narrative and this new way of approaching and fixing problems in the world. Um, And gaming, of course, is very popular in libraries, too. So I really expect McGonagall to have uh, a lot of food for thought for libraries and for those of us in the creative arts.
1: So when you say the theme is transformation, what kind of transformations are we talking about? I mean, certainly publishing has been undergoing a transformation over the last few years, but how have libraries been transformed? I
0: think the main theme for libraries is that they're shifting away from this you know, this idea of being a passive provider of materials to really becoming an incubator for creators. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we see this in a number of ways that are going to be on full display in Las Vegas. And that's from maker movements. Uh, Libraries today are are really embracing sort of the maker movement and have become maker spaces with 3d printers. Uh, And and it's not just technology that's driving that either. Everything from having knitting classes, all can be part of the maker movement here. Uh, And also in terms of self-publishing, which is also something libraries are wrestling with here um there's a big demand in communities for people who not only want to you know take out books but want to write books and publish books and i think the library is seeing it that it definitely has a role to play there uh so self-publishing is going to be a big part of what we're talking about in las vegas
1: And I was looking down the uh, list of people who were going to be appearing, and I noticed that they're almost all on the other, and they're almost all young adult authors. Uh, So is there just a... I didn't didn't sort of grow up with the idea of libraries being very child-centric spaces. They tended to be more um, adult-focused. At least that was my sense of them. Um, But now it seems like kids are a big part of the target market.
0: Enormous part of the... In fact, that's probably one of the main pieces of the ALA piece is is the uh, is the children's and YA section now you see a number of authors in the main program who appeal to the children and YA section, but where you really see it is on the show floor. You will see lines going around corners and jammed up aisles where uh, children and YA authors are doing signings at booths. And if you look through the author section on the ALA website of who's coming to the ALA annual conference, it is jam packed with children's authors and uh, teen stuff, and you know also to a lot of those you know YA books are being read by adults. That these is very too. true.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So what else has uh, been going on in the the library world? And also you've been covering some things on the legal front for us as well.
0: Lots of news in the legal front. Uh, you know, I think for me, the main thing that I'm going to be looking forward to is the ebook situation in libraries. And we've talked about it on this show in the past. Uh, and it's a main part of what I do here at the magazine. And I cover the library ebook market has been struggling, I think to say the least over the last couple of years, but as of last year, they saw some progress. All of the major publishers are now involved with lending ebooks, and that's a really good sign. but now we've already seen the conversation begin to shift now it's away from this idea of what publishers need to feel comfortable securing basic access to ebooks and libraries to what the market Is going to make successful. And I think the key to that success is the user experience. So far, the library user experience has not been a very good one. And I think a lot of people are being turned away from the library website, either by a long hold list on a bestseller or by having to click 15 times to get Mm -hmm. something to download. And user expectations are really being retrained by the Amazons and the Netflixes out there. So, how, now that we have this basic level of access, which didn't come easy, and I give the ALA and the publishers full credit for working this out, even though I think it took longer than it needed to, what's going to happen in the marketplace and how we're going to get libraries up to speed with the user expectations generated by these for profit services? That's going to be a major theme of the conference this year and something I look forward to reporting on.
1: So when you mention Netflix, for example, if I go and watch a movie on Netflix, there's no limit to how many people can be watching that movie at the same time. But right now, um, e-books have this sort of artificial limitation placed on them where you can only take out 10 or 15 copies as though there were actual physical copies of the e-book that you were borrowing. Do you think that's going to change?
0: I do think that's going to change. I think it has to change. I think we're seeing a streaming model come into, for, for so many different kinds of media, People expect their apps to work, mm-hmm. you know, like they expect an app to work. And this idea of putting friction or some sort of artificial restriction from this old analog era reading, I, I don't think that that's sustainable for very long. Uh, I think it's something the publishers want to lean on now until they figure out how they're going to carry their legacy business forward. Um, the problem is, is that they can't be too slow. You know, they're going to lose libraries, especially are going to lose these readers to other services. Uh, if their apps don't provide a good user experience. And I think we're starting to see that message come through in the last couple of uh, weeks at BEA and uh, at a breakfast panel that I hosted at Random House last week. We've seen a renewed focus, uh, at least an an acknowledgement of the idea that the user experience is extremely important here.
1: So there's this idea that... uh libraries can't just depend on readers to always be there. The readers will either go off and buy books somewhere else or they'll start playing video games and watching movies instead.
0: I think that's exactly right. And I think that for publishers, that would be a a huge mistake. You know, especially, and I'll say this about the, the stuff you can watch now on Netflix. The biggest thing to me competing for the attention of the consumer these days is that television has gotten a lot better. You know, Mm -hmm. it was a lot easier to read a book in the old days because TV sucked. Let's be perfectly honest. There wasn't a lot of great stuff on TV. But there is a ton of very well done stuff that's now available on Netflix all for an all you can eat price of what 7.99 8.99 a month and it's all on the same screen as your ebooks are
1: and now. half of it is based on books
0: and most <laughs> of them, you know a great deal of it is based on books so if it comes down to you you you've got your tablet and you know do you have to get on a holds list at a library for 6 months to get a bestseller or pay 14.99 for it on Amazon or will you watch something on Netflix that you've already paid 7.99 for the month for or Amazon Prime. I think there's a lot of competition all on one screen for user attention and I think that publishers and libraries need to recognize that and get on it. If we lose libraries, if we lose reading you know, if if libraries lose that, it's going to be a problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is, I think, uh, I I just realized I haven't heard the word torrent or piracy in, in kind of a while. Those words have just dropped off the radar. So people are no longer talking about the competition for legal books being illegal books. They're talking about other services you pay for, like Netflix, where you're you're paying a small monthly fee, but you're still paying for it.
0: That's right. I think that's a really good point. I mean, back when I was going to conferences in the end of the 2000s, or beginning of the 2000s, right up until about 2009, piracy was always a major topic. But now I think people realize that it's you know less of a concern... Uh, especially compared to the idea that you just have to reach people. You have to put this in front of them. And I think there's actually a concern now that more people are being restricted from basic access to this stuff than mm-hmm. are stealing. It, and that may be a bigger problem. So I, I, you're, you're right on with that. I think that the, the atmosphere shifted away. You know who is still talking about piracy is the Motion Picture Association. That's true. And you know, it's interesting to watch how the TV industry is, is doing incredibly well with streaming, but mm-hmm. the motion picture industry is still, you know, sort of figuring it out and still lobbying against piracy. Not to say that piracy isn't an issue, but you know, the streaming model for TV, I think, is showing us all what the future is.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's always great to get your perspective on these topics. And maybe after you come back from ALA, you'll tell us what happened in Vegas.
0: I will tell you what happens in Vegas. And uh, it's always great to be here. And we miss you on the podcast.
1: Oh, us. well, thank you. Maybe I'll come by sometime.
0: Yeah, please do.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
2: You've been listening to
0: Publishers Weekly Radio Show.